As I promised a few weeks ago, today we are going to begin a study on the second coming of Jesus Christ, the end of the world, those kinds of things. And this will be a six-week study together as we study on this theme. Um, I must tell you, this is a monumental task. Uh, I've been working on this for several months, and this is just a monumental task, and especially to try to do it in six weeks. I mean, we couldn't cover it all in six years. I don't have that kind of time. Uh, I just, uh, so this is going to be a monumental task, and I want you to understand a couple of things. I'm going to call them ground rules as we launch into this study of the return of the king. First ground rule is this. We can't possibly cover it all. So you might be tempted to write to me and say, why'd you leave that out? Well, I'm, I, there, there really is a reason with what I'm going to include in the study. Uh, I'll cover that here in just a moment. But we can't examine all every word and every minutia and every detail that Revelation gives uh, in the imagery and the mysterious nature that it writes. And not only, not only Revelation, but also Daniel and Ezekiel and Zechariah and other places in the Bible that have uh, prophetic uh, messages for us regarding the return of Jesus. That's number one. Number two, I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of a prophet. What I am is a student. And I have studied uh, this. My intention on this uh, in this study is to present what the Bible says about the second coming, not merely what I think and what I feel, what I've heard, what I've experienced. I have over the course of my lifetime heard as well as preached several sermons on this subject. And I have learned this to be to be uh, true, and that is that there are a lot of divergent views out there on this subject matter. A lot of varying teachings uh, that are out there, and it's important that we not cover all of those, but rather what the Bible has to say, because that's the authority, and that is the truth. The problem is that when the Bible presents uh, these kinds of words and teachings with regards to eschatology or apocalyptic writings, the, there is some mystery that's involved. There are some things that we don't understand because they are future events. They are events that haven't yet taken place. And so what tends to happen is that we say, well, this could mean this. Well, I think it might mean this, and it might be this way, and it might be that way, and all of a sudden you've got a, just a conglomeration of ideas. That's why I think it's important for us to study the scriptures, and especially we're going to focus in what Jesus himself said about his second coming, about his return. The third truth that I want or ground rule that I want to make is this. You likely won't agree with everything I say. 
That's okay, I'm used to that. But uh, I understand that going into this study. The book of Revelation and other apocalyptic books and chapters in the Bible are mysterious because, as I said, they are future events that have not yet been fulfilled. And over the centuries, authors, preachers, theologians, and just about everyone else have presented their interpretations. And they typically are not fully in agreement with one another. So depending on who you heard preach growing up, or who you like to read in your quiet time, you probably have, have developed different ideologies or different understandings about the second coming. I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. I'm not telling you what I, the truth that I feel or the truth that I've uncovered is absolute. But I do tell you that what the Bible says is. And so that's why we're going to look at scripture uh, and understanding that that you might uh, not agree with it all, but here's what I ask for during this time. To have a critical heart, but also an understanding heart. Go ahead and say, well, that's not the way I understood it. Go and study it out for yourself, and then come back and tell me where I'm off, okay? <laughs> Are you good? Yes. All right. I want you, if you will, this morning... Well, before we do, let me deal with a couple of terms that I just mentioned that you that kind of went like this over your head, perhaps. One of those words, because that's important for us to have, is the word eschatology. Eschatology is a compound of two Greek words that means essentially end times, last time, uh, last days, events uh, of of the end of the world as we know it and as we experience it. So eschatology is, is about those things that are going to be coming uh, and the way that God will end everything. Now you understand that we are on a time uh, in a time cap, we're on a countdown toward the end of the age. And this is nothing new. When the disciples were walking on this planet, they were living with an awareness of the end of the age. When the Old Testament saints were walking, they were understanding that there would be an end of the age. The question is, when? And what's going to happen? And how is it going to happen? And why is it going to happen? Eschatology is a study of all of that. It includes such subjects as the rapture of the church, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the great tribulation, the tribulation, all of these and many other things, a plethora of other things uh, that are out there. And so uh, that's what eschatology, that's what we're talking about, the end times events. The other word that I use that, you, that may have caused you to glass over a little bit was the word apocalyptic. Apocalyptic comes from the Greek word apocalypsis or some derivative of that, and it means to unveil or to make known, to reveal, to lay bare. And so apocalyptic writing is writing about the things that are going on in the end times that are, this is what God sees and what God knows. And men in the Bible are writing this, especially this, as a, to illustrate it, in the book of Revelation, John is on the island of Patmos, 
and he has a vision and he's carried away in, in this vision. Sometimes he's in, in heaven and sometimes he's looking on the, uh, at, at the earth, the events on the earth. And he says, then this happened and it looked like this. And can you imagine somebody in the first century A.D. describing the Iron Dome of defense that Israel has now? Or even rockets that are being hurled at one another? Or some of the, the massive weaponry that has been developed over the centuries? How do you describe that if you've never seen anything like that? You see, what God was doing with John was he was unveiling pulling back the curtain so John could see what God saw. Here's an important understanding in, in what I'm saying. You and I are very present tense people. We live in the moment right now. This, right now, okay? Now, what I did before I clapped my hands, you remember. It's a memory. What's going to happen after this is a hope or a dream or plans or expectations. But right now is when we're living. We are confined to time and space. Do you get that idea? God is not. God is eternal. God is outside of time. And so God can right now look at the creation and at the end as one panorama. And he can see the way it's going to end. He knows all these things. You and I don't. And so he has chosen to unveil or to reveal the mysterious truths about the way it's going to end. That's called apocalyptic writing. Now, I need to distinguish between apocalyptic and prophecy. Prophecy, especially as it regards to the Old Testament prophets, was a thus saith the Lord. If you do this, I will do this. If you don't do this, I will do this. Okay, that's, that's kind of prophetic writing. It's conditional in, in a lot of ways on our response. Apocalyptic writing, the unveiling, has nothing to do with you and me and what, how we respond. This is the way it's going to happen. It's not open for debate, discussion, negotiation, any of that. God says this is the way it will end. So when God says it, that gives it power and authority, and our opinions and our beliefs don't really influence that. Does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. We need to, You need to have that basic understanding as we launch into this subject. So we're talking about the second coming of, of Jesus Christ, the soon return of Jesus Christ. And to do that, I want you to turn, if you will, with me to the very last page in your Bible of biblical books, the last chapter of the last, um, of the last uh, book in the Bible, the book of Revelation chapter 22. Let me catch you up to date. Jesus at this point has already returned. He returns in chapter 19 of Revelation. Then of course, uh, there is this, he, he comes at the scene of the Battle of Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, and uh, there all the nations, all the enemies of God have been gathered in one valley to do battle, and Jesus appears, and like that. Okay, did you see how fast that was? Like that, the war's over. Jesus has won, and the enemy has been completely vanquished. 
Jesus literally, physically sets his foot on the earth. And chapter 21, 20 and 21 describe how he sets up and establishes his kingdom on this earth. Okay, now remember over in Matthew 24, we'll get over there in subsequent weeks. But in Matthew 24, his disciples, Jesus' disciples asked him, Lord, what is the sign of your coming and the end of the age, eschatology? What's, how do we know when all this is going to happen? It's already happened in the book of Revelation. Still future for us. But it's already happened. So when we arrive at chapter 22, Jesus is going to give a summary statement or an application of what the entire book of Revelation up to that point is about. And he speaks four times in the book of Revelation chapter 22. Four times. Three of them are almost exactly the same. I want us to look at those because there's a word that is used there. That is absolutely critical to our understanding today. Uh, so I want you to look, look at, first of all, you're in Revelation 22. Look at verse 7. Revelation 22, verse 7. Jesus is speaking. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then jump on down to verse 12. Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay every, everyone for what he's done. And then you go down, if you will, to Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. The first part of that verse says that he who testifies to these things, to the things that are in this Bible, in this book, in this in this story of the end of times, says, surely I am coming soon. Now there are, the word that I wanted you to, to notice there is the word soon. I am coming soon. That word is a word that means suddenly, quickly. It, it's, it's also used, it, it's, it's descriptive of what it says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, where Jesus has given all these signs about the end of the, end of the age. Remember, the, the disciples asked the question, what's the sign of your coming in the end of the, end of the age? In verse 27, he says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so it will be with the coming of the Son of Man. Now, we are in a period of time in our city, at least, or our region, where there's been a lot of rain. Has there been a lot of rain where you are? <laughs> and there have been a lot of thunderstorms along with that. And every now and then you'll have a flash of lightning, a bolt of lightning that comes. And it doesn't matter, even if they said that there might be on the weather, there might be some thunderstorms. When the lightning comes, it's always sudden. It, it always startles us. And it catches our attention. And it may be nighttime, but when that, that crackle of light takes place, it lights the sky. And it goes all the way across the sky. And that's what Jesus is using as the imagery of his soon return. It's going to be like lightning that quick. And when it happens, 
it will shine so that all can see it. That will be the time, the, the way it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. So that raises a question for us. Could Jesus really be coming soon? The word soon that's used there is the word in Greek is the word taku. Sounds a little bit like taco, but it has nothing to do with tacos, except that if you go to Taco Bell, they will give you a taco quickly. That's the only relationship that I can come up with. This soon, this sudden return of Jesus that he talks about has to do with like the lightning that flashes across the sky. When Jesus comes back, listen, he's not going to mess around. He's not going to, to, to discuss it with you first. He's not going to wait until the Southern Baptist Convention meets and votes whether it's okay for him to return. When he returns, he will return soon and suddenly. What does that tell you then about your life? Now, I, when I grew up, as I grew up, I always had, because I grew up in a Southern Baptist Church. Pretty traditional, the same kind of thing that may be your experience that we heard and talked about the second coming. And so I had the theological understanding that Jesus was going to be coming again soon, just not real soon, not very soon. I had time. And so I could go about my life and I could come back next Sunday and having sown my wild oats, pray on that Sunday for God, to God for crop failure on the things that I had done. And because I, I figured I had time. But when it came to me that Jesus could come, listen, today, like that, it changes everything, does it you? Are there some things that you would do differently if you knew for certain that Jesus is going to come tomorrow? Is there someone you would talk with? Is there something in your life you would deal with? Well, let me ask you this. Is there anybody here who can say that Jesus won't come tomorrow? You see, if we understand that Jesus is really coming soon, suddenly, like lightning across the sky, it should change us the way that we live, shouldn't it? So that's what I want to share with you in this first study of this, uh, of this message, um, of this series of messages. Because I want you to know and to understand that Jesus could come very soon. In fact, I believe he's coming sooner rather than later. I, I didn't always believe that. That isn't what they taught us in seminary. You don't get that in seminary. We get the old idea, he's coming soon, but just not real soon. But the Bible, Jesus is saying, I'm coming soon. Now, I should have said this in my disclaimers. I am not here to tell you when Jesus is coming back. You know why? Because I haven't the faintest idea. I don't know. The day, the hour, the events, all of that stuff that are going to take place when he returns. I'm not that smart, and I'm in pretty good company. Neither are you. Neither is anybody else who's ever lived. Jesus 
included. Jesus said no one knows the day and the hour when, G when Jesus will return. Only my Father in heaven knows. If I or anyone else tell you this is when Jesus is coming back, you have my permission to get up and walk out. Okay? Because I I'm teaching against what Jesus is teaching at that point. I don't know when he's coming back, but I know it's going to be soon. How do I know that? The Bible says that. And so I want to talk with you about some signals that tell us Jesus is coming soon. To do that, I want to give you three dates. I want to give you three dates that we will discuss in more detail, not only in this sermon, but also in subsequent messages to it. The three dates are these. May the 14th, 1948. June the 7th, 1967. And May the 14th, 2018. Now, if you're 74 years of age or older, you've seen all of these dates come in your lifetime. Okay, so th these are recent events that are critical to your understanding about the second coming of Christ. And I can see that many of you are trying to figure out exactly what these dates have to do with anything. I mean, we, if I would have said September the 11th, 2001, you'd have remembered that. Or if I would have said December the 25th, any year, you'd remember that. You'd know what that was about. These three dates might be the most critical dates in the history of our world, of our existence. And most of us don't pay attention to them. But they are signs of the return of Jesus. So I just want you to remember those dates, and I'll go over them a little bit, what they mean, what the dates represent, what they stand for, and how they fit into the overall um, the overall teachings with regards to the second coming of Christ. As you look at those dates, I, I want to tell you that God has been up to something since Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, God began to reveal his countdown. For the way that this world that he created perfectly that fell in the Garden of Eden, that fell from its perfection and was placed under a curse. And God started the process of bringing about deliverance and redemption and forgiveness and salvation that will be culminated with the second coming of Christ the end of this age, the end of this world, and the recreation of the heaven and the earth. All that's spoken about in the book of Revelation at the end. <clears throat> These dates that, that come along are events right at the very end in the Bible uh, that tell us a little bit about, uh, about Jesus. But God started it all in chapter 3 where he promised that after man sinned and was placed under the curse, that God would bring a deliverer for them. Now, if you're going to have a community of people, you first have to have a people, right? And the people have to start from somewhere. And that began with one person in Genesis chapter 12. His name there was the, was the name Abram. You and I better know him as Abraham. 
Abraham, so if you don't mind me calling him that at this point, even though the Bible calls him Abram. Abraham is living his life in another part of the world other than this land that becomes uh, known as the promised land, this land of Canaan, same, same geographical or similar geographical territory as Israel is seated in uh, right now. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to Abraham and he says to him, I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those or this, and the one that dishonors you, him will I curse. And in you, all the nations and the families and the people of the earth will be blessed. To make a people, God chose man. Israel then became the community, the people of God. Israel was the real-life grandson of Abraham. And this promise was handed down to, to, um, uh, to Israel, to Jacob. And then the sons of Israel, the sons of Jacob, became the nation. Eventually, the nation of Israel. And lastly, they settled in the land. So you've got a person, a people, a community, a nation, and a land where they all live. And the promise is that through you, all the peoples of the world will be blessed. Guess what? Through Israel, the nations of the world have been blessed. You see, Israel brought us the Bible, 64 of the 66 books in your Bible were written by Jewish people. Israel brought us Jesus, our, our Redeemer, our Savior, the Son of God, was a Jew, born to Jewish families in, in Israel, in that part of the world. You see, Israel has blessed the world and continues to bless the world every time you pick up your Bible and you read a verse in your quiet time and it encourages you or speaks to you or confronts you in some way. Israel is blessing you. And every time a person gives their life to Jesus, Israel is blessing you. This was the promise and the plan of God as he continued to work. And so I want to talk about some of the signals that are out there that Jesus is returning very soon. What has God up to? Have you been paying attention to the, to the news lately about what's going on in Israel, between Israel and the Palestinians? Nothing new. It's just different activities, different things going on. There's been fussing and fighting and feuding between these two formally as a nation since Israel became a nation again. Since Israel repatriated, resettled in the land that we know as Israel today, the Palestinians, and not just the Palestinians, but all the neighbors around, all the Arab nations, all the Muslim world that surrounds Israel have, got, have been in conflict with one another. <clears throat> and so 
There is a, I wonder, is there somebody back there that might be able to go in and get me a bottle of water from the fridge? Thank you, Lori. Um, <clears throat> so I want to share with you some things that are going on now in the way that uh, the Bible teaches us as the things that will happen with regards to the second coming of Jesus, all right? So we're, we've talked about some of the things that God has been doing. What's God up to now, in this day and in this age, all right? You, now, if you are a note taker, this is where you start taking notes, <clears throat> okay? Because I'm not going to be able, in this message alone, to share with you uh, every detail about these things. But I am going to share them with you, and we'll, we'll discuss them further, many of them, in the lessons, the, the sermons that follow this in this series, okay? But I want to share with you things that ought to be red flags to you. If you're, if you're questioning whether or not Jesus is coming real soon, pay attention to these seven signals. I could have called them sirens. I could have called them alarm clocks, you know, that loud noise that wakes you up. These are the seven signals that Jesus is, re is returning soon. All right? Are you ready? Uh, and you can have your Bible open or you can write the verses down. But I want you to, uh, to be able to follow me. The words, the, thank you, Larry. The, the words will uh, uh, be on the screen so you don't have to, to look them up in your Bible. But write them down so you can return and study them more fully in detail. The first one, the first signal, we've already talked about it, is that Israel has already blessed the world. Israel has been a blessing to the world. Now let me tell you why that's important. Over in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Ezekiel, there is a prophecy with regard to Israel being a nation. I already mentioned that Israel has blessed the world, continues to bless the world, is blessing the world even as we speak, as we're looking at the book and the writings <coughs> that Israel has provided for us with regards to the second coming. So we're being blessed even right now. Do you know there was a time when there wasn't an Israel? I mean, not just as a geopolitical nation, although there has been that, uh, but the time when the, when the community of Israel didn't exist. They were as good as dead. Okay. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is a prophet writing during the time of the Babylonian exile. That means when Israel was conquered by the Babylonians and taken away to be captives in, in that land, the land of Babylon. And for 70 years, they lived in captivity in Babylon. And not only that, but they were scattered all around the Babylonian empire. And they were, they lived a generation in this foreign land. <clears throat> Daniel was among those 
who was a part of that people that were taken away in captivity to Israel or to Babylon. As Ezekiel is prophesying to the people and trying to tell them, listen, folks, it might look like we're all dead here, but God's not finished with us yet. In the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37 is an intriguing vision that God gives to, um, to Ezekiel. And to do this, God takes him out vi uh, through a vision into a desert, deserted, dry, arid place. And what is scattered all around him are bones. Not even skeletons, just bones. Disjointed, dislocated bones scattered all over this region. And God is going to ask him a question. And here in verse 3, the question that is asked is, Son of man, can these bones live? Think with me, all right? Don't check your brain at the door. What's the answer to that question? No. No, these bones can't live. They're disjointed. They're separated from one another. And so Ezekiel, understanding that he's talking to God, knows that God knows stuff he doesn't know. And so he says, oh, Lord God, you know. And that's another way of saying, if they can, you're the only one who can figure it out. There's a measure of faith there, but there's also a statement of reality in that. And then God gives him some instruction. He says, here's what I want you to do. Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these dead bones. Boy, have I been there. I don't, I, present company accepted. But preaching to a situation that you are convinced is helpless. Okay, that there's, it's going to take a, it's going to take more than just my preaching to wake these people up, to stir them up. It's going to take dynamite to blow them up. So he says, prophesy to these bones and tell them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And here's what the word is: Thus says the Lord God to you, to you bones, behold, I will cause breath. To enter, to, you, to enter you, and you shall live. And I will put breath in you, and you'll live. And you will know that I am the Lord, and I will lay sinews upon you. I will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. This is what the message that, that Ezekiel is instructed to preach to a hopeless, dead situation. Now, do you know what's going to happen? I hate to give away this, the end of the story, so let's just jump down to verse 21 because I want you to understand when he spoke, all these bones came together and all this stuff happened, and the application that's given to us is over... Did I skip a verse? Uh, uh, verse 21. I want to go down there. Uh, that's, I don't know what slide that is. There we go. Behold, I will take the people of Israel. This is the application of what he's just seen. 
I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, where they have been scattered. I will take them and I will bring them together. And it says, and I will gather them from all around and I will bring them to their land. Okay, now get the picture. The, the people of Israel that God had called out that he started with Abraham have now been taken into captivity in Babylon and not just there, elsewhere around the world. And they have been scattered all around the world. They are no more, they have no more nation. They have no more territory. They have no more land. They, have, they are no longer a community of faith. Any of these things, they are just individuals who share the same heritage, the same uh, physical uh, race, if you will. Uh, and he says, and I will, I'm going to bring you all back together, and I'm going to make you come together. And even if God can make the bones come together, and he breathed life into them, that's not going to be enough, is it? Because have you ever seen the cartoons where skeletons walk around and air just kind of comes in and goes out? I don't know if those are scientific or medical or anything like that, but it's going to take more than just coming together. But that's, you know what happened? In the mid, middle part, about 550 or so B.C., King Cyrus and the Medo-Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire, and King Darius allowed Israel to go back to their land. And all these people who were scattered all the land came back together, and they became a people. That's only one time that God did that. There was another time that God did that. And that is... Uh, and after, they, after Israel came back in and they continued to live in the land, they were still governed and ruled by other outside groups, like the Romans. And then in the first century after Christ, the, the Jews kind of rebelled against the Romans, and that's never a real good thing to do. And they were crushed. And Israel, Jerusalem, was trampled upon, was leveled, including the Temple Mount. And Israel ceased to be a people, a nation again. But do you know that God brought them back together again? In the fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 37. You know when that took place? May 14th, 1948. After World War I, Britain took control of the Middle East. And they determined that there, after World War II that there needed to be a land where the Jews could live and feel safe and secure and exercise their community of faith and they were granted by the, by the, <clears throat> by the United Nations statehood on May the 14th, 1948. And on that day, President Harry Truman recognized the nation of Israel and their right to exist. And Israel suddenly had their own land again. Now that's nothing short of a miracle. You tell me any other, is, uh, any other nation or people in the world that have done that. They were, they were almost 2,000 years unaffiliated, separated from one another. Those are dry bones. But God brought them back. That's a signal, folks, of the last time. And so 
that's, that's the second signal I'm going to give to you. Israel came back into their land. Israel came back into their land. And Israel's still there. <coughs> now, that's not been a piece of cake for them. Not been a, a cakewalk in any way. It's been a, a challenge for them. But they are now living in that land. And, and that, is, uh, uh, that is what God had said he would do. And not just, not just in Ezekiel. He also said it in the prop, through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, Isaiah asked this question. Who's heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land, a nation, be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? It's not possible, but God did it. Because God is up to something. God is getting us ready for the soon return of Jesus Christ. That's the third signal that I want you to see. Israel was reborn in one day. On May the 13th, 1948, Israel did not exist as a nation. On May 14th, they did. It took them about nine months to put together a government. On day one, when they were declared to be a, a nation, all the Arab nations around them surrounded them and began the process of annihilating Israel. Still going on today, but they haven't done it. You know why? God's hands on Israel. I should have said this earlier, why this is important. Anytime you're going to study a subject matter, there are some basic foundational things that you need to know. For instance, if you are someone who likes higher mathematics, let me know, we'll pray for you. But you can't do, you cannot perform uh, functions of physics and higher math unless you understand the basics of addition and subtraction. You can't know and understand the English language or any language for that matter until you understand ABCs and then grammar, especially such a thing as verbs. If you don't understand verbs, you're gonna be in trouble in learning languages. Do you get my point? When you're studying in times, the thing that you have to understand is Israel. Because Israel is the timepiece, is the mechanism through which God is bringing about the return of his son. The end of the day, the eschatology. Israel was born in one day because God birthed them. Let me ask you what uh, the Bible asks. Is anything too hard for God? So there's this signal. Israel was born in one day and God had predicted that. In Zechariah chapter 12, God said once Israel was back in their land, the nations around them would reel around as if they were drunk. Here's what 
Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2 says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. Do you know what kind of people surround the city of Jerusalem? Palestinians, Muslims. In 1948, when Israel was granted statehood, every one of her Muslim neighbors went nuts. And since that day, and here's the fourth signal, the surrounding nations continue to stagger. They still are. They are driven. They are passionate. They, are, they will lose their own lives if they can only annihilate Israel. God said they would. Did you see 500 years before, before Jesus was born? He talked about when Israel has their land in 1948, all the nations around them are going to stagger. They're going to go crazy. They're going to go nuts. They're going to be obsessed with destroying Israel. The nations that have surrounded Israel have vowed to drive her into the sea. From 2006 until 2016, the United Nations Human Rights Council criticized Israel 68 times. That is three times more than any other nation. Enemies go berserk over Israel. They send in suicide bombers. They rain mortar fire. They dig stealth tunnels. They bring resolution after resolution after resolution to the UN. God predicted this through this prophet Zechariah. And in case you're wondering, Zechariah lived 500 years before Jesus was born. At a time, listen to this, when Israel wasn't even a nation. What then, of course, once the Romans scattered them, there was no Israel to drive anyone crazy. This prophecy, this prediction from God in Zechariah 12, could only be fulfilled after Israel was reconstituted as a nation. And on May the 14th, 1948, it was. Another significant day came 19 years later. That's June the 7th of 1967. If you know your history, your world history, you will understand that this was a time when Israel had war with its neighbors. It was a preemptive strike that Israel had on his neighbors. Um, Israel, uh, let's see how this goes. A few months before, a few weeks before June of, of 1967, the nation of, of Egypt ordered the UN troops that were stationed as a buffer there along the Egyptian-Israelite border in the Sinai Peninsula to be removed. And they gathered their elite troops and they put them right up on the border of Israel. At the same time, Jordan and Iran took their troops and they went to the eastern border of Israel and they readied their troops for battle. At the same time, the nation of Syria brought their troops to the border of Israel on its north side, and they were ready for battle against Israel. There is no western side. 
there's only the Mediterranean Sea on that western side. So you see Israel was trapped. Israel, seeing that, did a preemptive strike on their enemies on all three fronts. To cut through and make a long story short, they've won on all fronts. Anyone who's, who is an army person or a military person will tell you, if you want to be successful in war, limit the number of fronts that you have to fight on. If you're fighting a war here and a war here and a war here and you're kind of having all of these different distractions, it's going to be very difficult to win. Not for Israel. You know why? God's hand was on Israel. And on June the 7th, they began to, they began to drive their enemies back, especially with regards to, um, to uh, the, the ones to Jordan and Iran. And the Jordanians believed that the Israel that Israel was so powerful they were going to absolutely destroy all of their army, and so they withdrew. But they didn't just withdraw to where uh, where they could, to their controlled territory, i.e., East Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem was divided. There was west that was on that was. Uh, West Jerusalem that was part of Israel and Eastern Jerusalem that's part of Palestine. And they didn't just go there. They went all the way back across the Jordan River. And without firing a shot at them that day on June the 7th, unintentionally, Israel took the eastern side, the eastern city of, of East Jerusalem. And for the first time then, Israel owned all of Jerusalem. That's important. Do you know why? Because East Jerusalem is where the Temple Mount is. Are you seeing how God is working in this nation of Israel? That these are all things that have to take place before the second coming of Christ. In, uh, in, Re in Revelation chapter 11, in Revelation chapter 11, uh, we, we read these words in verse, verse 1, beginning at verse 1. Revelation 11, verse 1. Uh, <clears throat> he, tells, he tells John to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. Do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now, what you have to see is the, where the courts are, that's where the Dome of the Mosque is today. This revelation is given 700 years before Islam existed. Okay? And God says, leave the courts out, measure the temple mount, you know why that's important? Because you're going to rebuild the temple. More about that next week. They have not rebuilt the temple, but I want you to know there are two groups that are well underway to starting a rebuilding of the temple. That's going to cause a lot of conflict, I think, on Temple Mount. But so far, I'm will, I put my money on God winning that one. And he says, for 42 months, you know how long 42 months is? That's three and a half years. 
and in three and a half years is three and a half years is half of seven years, and the half of seven years is Daniel talked about there being a seven-year tribulation, three and a half years of tribulation, and then three and a half years of great tribulation. And it will be during that time where the nations of the world are stamps, uh, are trampling over the holy city, even the holy mount. But he says that's okay. God has given them over to that because that's going to be a part of their destruction. Don't you see? So what you, what you have here is another signal. Uh, and that is that uh, Israel owns now all of the Temple Mount. Israel owns the entire uh, Temple Mount. And these are events that have happened, folks, in your lifetime. Israel became a nation, May the 14th, 1948. Israel took control over Jerusalem, June the 7th, 1967. There's a third date that I need to share with you. Uh, and in doing so, I, I want to, uh, I, want to I want to first talk about Israel owning the Temple Mount. In Luke chapter 4, I'm sorry, 21, which is the sister portion of scripture that speaks to the Olivet Discourse that's recorded in Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus is answering the question, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? In Luke chapter 21, verse 24, Jesus is speaking. He says, they, meaning Israel, will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. When's that going to happen? June 7th, 1967. Do you understand, Gentile friend, that God is measuring time by Israel? And God has a community of people that are related to him, not by blood, but by faith. And God has raised this people up to be a blessing to you, but to also be a timepiece to keep your eye on. Now Israel owns the Temple Mount. Sixth signal. Today, now, May the 22nd, 2021, Jerusalem is the capital city over Israel. That wasn't true until May the 14th, 2018. When President Trump declared and established Israel's capital to be Jerusalem, no longer Tel Aviv, but Jerusalem, and moved the U.S. Embassy up. You can Google this. You can look this up for yourself that today the, the U.S. Embassy resides not in Tel Aviv, but in Jerusalem. And when the United States did that, Many, if not most other nations of the world move their, move their uh, uh, embassies to, to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is the capital. Is that important? Absolutely it's important. That's what God has been doing 
from the beginning. God is uh, is uh, is making Israel whole and complete so that he can use them through the most important days in the history of this people. Let me give you the seventh one. I need to close. Seventh signal is that there is a red heifer that has been born. What in the world are you talking about, preacher? <laughs> there is going to be a temple built on the Temple Mount. That's the reason why John was instructed to measure the Temple Mount. Leave off this section over here, but measure this mount, because there's going to be a temple that's built there. Now, when John is prophesying this, the temple was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. John's writing about 25 years later. And he, he says... He says, measure this because we're going to build a temple. But once the temple's built, before it can be consecrated, there has to be the sacrifice of a red heifer. Not I'm not talking about a red-colored cow. I'm talking about a red heifer, as described in the Bible. In the book of Numbers, chapter 19, verse 2, the Lord spoke... Here's what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron. This is the legal statute that the Lord has commanded. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has, that has never been yoked. The priest Eleazar is to take some of its blood with his fingers and sprinkle it seven times over the front of the tent of that meeting. To consecrate the place, it was going to require a red heifer. Do you know that in Israel, in that land, there has not been a red heifer for more than a thousand years? And right now, Israel has identified, the people of Israel looking at this at this uh, description in, Luke, in Levit or Numbers 19. And by the way, that red cow according to Jewish tradition, cannot even have one single white hair on it, or it's disqualified. Every hair has to be red, has to be unblemished, no scars, no cuts, nothing. And it, it, it can never have had a yoke placed on its shoulders. And there is not only one red heifer. A thousand years they didn't have one. There are two in Israel today just in case something happens to one of them. Do you think God's up to something? That's when I began to put these things together, I said, wow, we ought to pay attention to this. This tells me Jesus is coming soon, real soon. It could be today. We may not sing our closing song today, Jesus could appear. If that's true, there's some things we should do with our lives to be ready. Let, let me just, let me close today by giving you this piece of encouragement. The idea that Jesus is coming back might sound fearful, but it should sound joyful. 
it's not something we need to be afraid of. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of a sound mind. And so if we know this to be true, maybe there are some things that I need to write in my life. Maybe there's someone I need to talk to. Maybe there's someone that something I need to do about myself. But here's, I just want to give you four things that you can do. And I'm going to just mention these and then we're going to close. Number one, don't be deceived. When you leave here in a few moments, when you turn off that video, Satan's going to come in and say, oh yeah, you believe all that? Or, wow, there was way too much information there I can never digest all. Satan is going to come in and take it away. Don't be deceived. What I have tried to do today is to share with you, to show you what God says to you. Don't be deceived. Remain faithful. Keep following Jesus. Keep your eyes on the sky because he's going to appear soon. Pray that God would have, would send revival in his people to understand all this. And to tell, and the fourth thing is tell somebody else about Jesus before it's too late. Could Jesus be coming soon? You betcha. You bet. You better believe it. You better understand it. Is it going to be today? I don't know. It may be 10,000 years from today. I don't think so. Otherwise, God's going to have to go through all these signals, other signals again. He's lined everything up so that everything that is necessary for him to come is here. Do you see that? He could come soon. And so when in answering that question, could Jesus come soon? Yes. The next question is, are you ready? I want you to bow your head with me, if you will. We, uh, we went a little long today. I hope that you'll forgive me for that. And I hope that God's spoken in some way to your heart. Thank you for staying with me. I want us to bow together and thank God for the promises that he's given and the way that he's working his plans and his purposes out in our world today. Pray with me. Father, thank you again for what we've learned today, the reminders that we've been given and the things that are going on in our world around us that we oftentimes don't pay attention to. We don't see your hand active and working. Father, let us today, today understand that you could send your son Jesus soon, sooner than we realize, more sudden than we think. Father, find us busy, find us occupying, find us serving you and sharing Jesus with others around us. Thank you, Father, for our time to be together, our time to study your word. Speak now to our hearts what we should do with what we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen.